So what I want to do tonight is I want to make the claim um, that Christian marriage is deeply satisfying. Um, and to do this, I want to look at four things. I want to look at the foundation of marriage, the culture of marriage, the mission of marriage, and finally the picture of marriage. And uh, just to note, um, relying heavily on two guys, Justin Clement and Tim Keller, um, and what they have taught me about marriage. And so first I want to say that Christian marriage is deeply satisfying because of the foundation. So what is the foundation of Christian marriage? Um, the foundation is that, that marriage is a covenant and not a contract. The idea of one man and one woman being together for a lifetime seems like a fairy tale to many of us. I mean, the most romantic stories we have, the ones that we see in the checkout aisle at the grocery store, these, these high visions of romance, they often end in bitter divorce. So what could hold a man and a woman together for a lifetime? Well, look at verse 31 with me. Um, in this passage here, um, Paul is quoting Genesis 2. He's saying where God himself describes the institution that he created. The man and woman, they leave their formal, former family loyalties and they cleave to one another. And this is the language of a covenant. One day, when you get married, you will make a covenant with, one person, with another person. Um, and a covenant is not a contract. So what is a covenant? Well, to give you an example of a contract. This is an iPhone. If you've seen one of these before, um, uh, I signed a two-year contract with Verizon, which I'm sure many of you did, and they will provide service to me as long as I pay. Right? This is the co- nature of the contract. Um, well, what happens when I don't pay? I actually don't know. I'm too scared to find out. But um, my guess is what they'll do is they'll turn off my service, and eventually that contract will be broken if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain. And a lot of us have this as our framework for marriage. We have contract as our framework for marriage. We agree to make one another happy, but if things get too hard or we stop enjoying one another or the other person ends up being not what we signed up for, then we can get out of the contract. Right? This is why prenups exist. They exist for contract marriages. When he stops making me happy, when he stops providing for me, when she stops being attractive, I can break the contract and turn her in for a new model. Now, a covenant is different than a contract. God designed marriage to be a covenant. And a covenant is not an agreement to a deal. Um, It's a radical commitment to another person. And if marriage is a covenant and not a contract, this has a few implications. Let me just suggest a few for us tonight. Um, If marriage is a covenant, it means that romantic feelings are not the foundation. Every romantic comedy is built on the premise that feelings are the bond of marriage. Right? You find the person that ignites the greatest amount of fireworks, and this is how you gauge the durability of a marriage. Right? This is what we're told. It's, it's by how hot and heavy you feel towards the other person. But feelings change. And if you build your marriage on the foundation of your feelings, then your marriage will crumble with the shifting sands of your own emotions. And sadly, many marriages end because of this. People say things like, well, I'm just not in love with her anymore. I don't have feelings for her anymore. Right? Someone who says that was looking for feelings to sustain their marriage. But marriage is what sustains the feelings. Let me explain this. Um, have you ever listened to the content of wedding vows? What it is that a husband and wife say to one another when they're getting married. Right? It's not, um, I love you so much and you're smoking hot. Like That's not what we say when we get married. We, the, the wedding vows actually have nothing to do with our present feelings towards one another. Um, vows are future promises that we make to a specific person. 
saying to one another before God and before and in public that you want to make you want this set of promises to shape your life together. Saying, I want these vows to shape who we will become together. In plenty and in want. Right? When we declare bankruptcy, I'm not going anywhere. In joy and in sorrow. When you are in your fifth year of depression, I'm not going anywhere. In sickness and in health. When you are going through chemo, I'm not going anywhere. Till death do us part. Right? These are future promises. And there's no promise of future loyalty in dating. Dating says, I like you right now, I might even love you right now, but that's all I can say today. And that's okay, but there are no future promises. I mean, can you imagine having another person stick with you when you're at your worst? Um, this has been, so last week, Mary Clark and I had our 10-year anniversary. We, we made it 10 years. Um, I wasn't saying that to get applause, but come on. Um, no, I'm just kidding. So, um, and about five years ago, I got hit with um, a pretty severe depression and anxiety. And this is seasonal for me. It happens. Um, it's, not, it's not clinical depression, but it's a, a seasonal depression that I'll, I'll get pretty low. And um, I was in a pretty bad place about five years ago. And, uh, and the way that Mary Clark fulfilled her vows to me was that she was by my side. She didn't go anywhere. And I remember telling her, um, I need you to tell tell me true things about myself. Like, I don't have the ability to believe the gospel. I don't have the, um, I can't muster up the energy to actually believe this stuff for myself. And to have me in the depths of, of that depression and of the anxiety, to ask her to tell me those things. And for her to, to say that, to tell me um, the things that are true about me because of my identity in Christ that I couldn't believe for myself. Um, this, is the, this is the nature of a covenant, that she is with me um, through the thick and through the thin, thin, these future promises that we've made. So it means that um, it means that romantic fa- feelings are not the foundation of marriage as a covenant. And it also means that uh, marriage is a choice. Look at verse twenty-eight with me. Um, Paul says this. He says, "Husbands should love their wives." Paul has already urged husbands to love their wives in verse twenty-five. But here, just to be clear, Paul uses a verb that stresses obligation. There's no doubt about what Paul's saying. He is commanding husbands that they ought to love their wives. Emotions can't be commanded. Only actions can be commanded. And so it's actions that Paul is demanding. Love and marriage is an action. It's a choice. It's a decision. Um, there's, a, there's a Civil Wars song, the band Civil Wars. Uh, it's a song, I've Got This Friend. And the, there's a line that goes like this. It says, oh, if the right one came along, if the right one came along, Oh, if the right one came along, it'd be such a shame if they never met. She sounds so lovely, he sounds right out of a dream. If only, if only, if only. Right? And in that song is this obsession with finding the one, right? This obsession we have with finding the one. And this paralysis if you miss it. Like, what if I miss the one? And some, I'm sure some of you in this room and and some of your friends are obsessed with this, obsessed with finding the one, and you're fearful that you've missed it, or that um, the right one will never come along. Others of you are paralyzed by the thought of saying yes to one guy or one girl and then missing out on the right one who would come later. And a question that I've gotten from y'all is, how did you know that Mary Clark was the one? And the answer is when Mary Clark said, I do. That's when I knew that she was the one. I was 23, she was 25, we'd known each other for about two years, we dated for about nine months, we're engaged for six, 
And here's what I knew about her. She loved Jesus. She was willing to put up with me and all that that entails. Or at least she thought she knew what that entailed at that point, uh, which is a lot more than you might think. Um, her laughter was contagious. She was delightfully unimpressed with me. Um, she didn't. This is really. She didn't seem to care about my gifts or my personality. She. I found that she actually cared about me. And here's the thing: she was willing to stand up in front of her family and her friends and a minister and make a lifelong pledge to be my wife, 24/7, 365, until we die. That's how I knew that she was the one. So marriage is a covenant. So why else is Christian marriage deeply satisfying? Um, it's deeply satisfying because it has a unique culture. So when I was a kid, I uh, went on a field trip to the Newmarket Battlefield in Virginia. This is a Civil War battlefield. I went in sixth grade. And we're there, and they had this giant um, Civil War cannon there. And they told us, they, were, they fired it off for us, and they told us to plug our ears and to open our mouths because the concussive force was so great that if we kept our mouths shut, it would blow out our eardrums. Or at least that they told us. Um, and we believed them. And so after the cannon went off, my ears were ringing so loud that I couldn't hear anything. In the first two words of verse 22, um, wives submit are like a Civil War cannon to us, right? They leave our ears ringing. They make it difficult for us to hear anything else in this passage. Submission for most of us is a dirty word. It's an act of force. It's me making you submit. No love. This is a word of power. Um, you Google image submission and you get guys in bikini body bottoms choking each other. Um, you know, we're like... WWE wrestle, wrestling, that's what I'm referring to. Um, you guys didn't know what I was talking about. Um, wrestlers, wrestlers, lots of wrestlers. Brittany's embarrassed for me. Um, and the image there, now you've got that in your head. Um, the image there is power without love. Power without love. Submission is, is dangerous. Um, it's, it's saying that you're willing to be a doormat. And for many of you, this isn't a funny image. Some of you have vivid memories of angry fathers yelling at cowering mothers to submit. Others of you have seen the scene play out in your friends' homes or in a movie somewhere. But this is not the picture that Paul is painting. This is not love. That is abuse. And women, if you are ever in that situation, get help and get out. What Paul is giving us here is not a rule of abuse, but a rule of love. Look at verses 22 and verse 25. Verse 22, he says, Wives, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We notice the difference between these commands. The wife is to submit. The husband is to love. Um, this seems unfair until we actually look at what these words mean. So first, the wife to submit. Submission, the Greek word here, submission, is something that is given voluntarily, not demanded. Something that is given voluntarily, not demanded. Biblically, submission is a reference to someone who is equal serving someone else who is an equal. It does not imply that women are inferior. If it implied inferiority, then Christians would have to believe that Jesus was inferior to the Father when he submitted to the God the Father's will to come and rescue us. But we know from Scripture that Jesus and the Father, the Son and the Father, are equal. Equal in power and glory, even as Jesus chose to serve the will of the Father by coming to rescue us. Also, all of this here follows verse 21, where he writes, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The husband's gentle love for his wife 
is an act of submission, not a reign of terror. Why? Because submission is Jesus' love. It's his agape, his, which um, by definition is self-sacrificial. And I am sorry that people and men and even some churches abuse the word submission. But I promise you that biblical, biblical submission is about love, not power. And I asked Mary Clark about this, um, how she thinks about submission. And she in turn asked some friends who she trusts. And this is how they responded. Um, I said this. They said, it is always being for the other's good over your own. Another said, I love that idea of thinking about the other's good. I would also add that it does not mean not sharing an alternate opinion. It means honestly and graciously sharing a different perspective. And when that occurs, full of respect for the position God has put the husband in. I also think it means giving weight to your husband's sense of God's guidance. Not to the detriment of how you think God is leading, but more in lines of taking him seriously and trusting that God will work through him, especially when you disagree. Practically, submission for me is being willing to give up what would feel like my rights for the good of husband and family. And when to hold on to them would be selfish and show a power struggle. struggle. So that's submission. What about love? What does it mean for husbands to love their wives? Well, simply put, it means to die. I mean, how does Jesus love the church? He died for her. As a husband, this means that I die first. I repent first. I, get, I forgive first. I serve first. C.S. Lewis wrote, the husband's crown is not made of gold, but of thorns. And this is the hardest thing in the world. I mean, our world teaches us that authority and leadership is about giving orders, not taking them. It's about exercising power, but not with the gospel. For in the gospel, we see that the one with the greatest authority and the greatest power, Jesus Christ, he laid it down and became a servant of all. God calls those in authority, in this case, husbands, to be gentle and to love, to give themselves in service for their wives. So what does this look like in practice? Um, ben Milner, who is a pastor of Salem Prez here in town, says this about, um, about submission and love. He says, if we have a decision to make, um, his wife Margie and he has a decision to make, let's say, going out to dinner, then they both make a choice. They, you know, he suggests a place and she suggests a place. And then Ben gets to choose. And he always chooses her choice. Always. The culture of marriage God gives us is real-time reconciliation. It's repentance and forgiveness. It's love and respect. It's submission and love. And this is what can give power and life to marriage. So first we see the foundation of marriage is a covenant, not a contract. The culture of marriage is submission to the rule of love. And third, the mission of marriage. Now marriage will make you extremely happy, but that's not the mission of marriage. God wants more than that. Look at verses 25 through 27. God sets up the covenant of marriage in such a way that when you enter into it, you begin to be transformed in beautiful ways. Paul says marriage is for becoming holy for being cleansed, for being washed, for becoming blameless. Marriage is God's scrubbing brush to cleanse us from the filth of our demanding hearts and the stain of our own self-centeredness. Um, I still remember what I was wearing and what Mary Clark was wearing on our first dates, our first date. Um, we looked good. I was 21. She was 22. Um, I wish we'd taken a picture, which would have been really awkward. Don't do that on a first date. That'd be really awkward. Um, awkward first date picture guy. But um, not only did we look good, um, we acted good. 
Like we were nicer and friendlier and funnier and better dressed than we actually are. We were putting forth a persona. And this is what we all do on first dates. But in marriage, stuff gets real. Right? All of your junk from the past comes out. All of the baggage you bring from your childhood, your awkward middle school years, your disappointments from high school, your mistakes from college, they get played out again. All of this stuff is brought out into the open, and both of you are forced to deal with it. So why does this happen? It happens because in marriage, your spouse becomes a mirror to you, showing you the real you. Um, when we were first married, uh, man, this happened really intensely for me because we would go to parties or just go out and be out with people. And we would come home and Mary Clark would tell me how the whole evening all I did was talk about myself and how insufferable it was to be around me in public. Um, and everything was all about John all the time. And so um, I had to, like, we developed a signal. So when, I, when we were in public and I was talking about myself too much, she could, like, you know, give me the signal. John, you're doing it again. Um, um, God is so committed to making me like Jesus, to making me more like Jesus, that he sent Mary Clark into my life to help bring my sinful patterns into the light and before the feet of Jesus. I was completely blind to my self-centeredness and my vanity. And by turning on the lights and showing me myself in a mirror, I was given a choice. I could either make excuses, I could get angry, or I could lean into that painfully humiliating process of becoming holy. Mary Clark loved me exactly where I was, but she loved me too much to allow me to continue with my blind spots. And when I experienced that love from her, I began to taste what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 5. That she wants to see me flourish. Tim Keller in his book, Meaning of Marriage, um, writes this. He says, what then is marriage for? Marriage is for helping each other to become our future glory selves. The new creations that God will eventually make us. The common horizon husband and wife look toward is the throne and the holy, spotless, and blameless nature we will have. I can think of no more powerful common horizon than that. And that is why putting a Christian friendship at the heart of a marriage relationship can lift it to a level that no other vision of marriage approaches. We often think of a prospective spouse as primarily a lover or a provider. And if he or she can be a friend on top of that, well, isn't that nice? We should be going at it the other way around. Screen first for friendship. Look for someone who understands you better than you do yourself, who makes you a better person just by being around them. And then explore whether that friendship could be a romance in a marriage. So many people go about their dating starting from the wrong end, and they end up in marriages that aren't really about anything and aren't going anywhere. So what Keller is saying has huge implications for what to look for in a spouse. We need to change our potential spouse questions. I mean, our default for these are, will this person make me great, and will this person make me happy? These are the wrong questions. I mean, we tend to look over our spouse candidates like in an investment bank that looks over job candidates. Um, we ask questions explicitly or implicitly, implicitly. We ask, will this person fit my timing in my career? Will this person make me happy? Will this person make me respectable before my parents and my friends? Will this person be a nice addition or accessory to my life? If you go into marriage asking these questions in year one, it will explode. Kathy Keller often says that most people, when they are looking for a spouse, they're looking for a finished statue when they should be looking for a wonderful block of marble. Not so that you can create the kind of person you want, but rather because you see what kind of person Jesus is making. 
When Michelangelo was asked how he carved his magnificent David, his reply is reputed to have been, I looked inside the marble and just took away the bits that weren't David. When looking for a marriage partner, each must be able to look inside the other and see what God is doing and be excited about being part of the process of liberating the emerging new you. So questions to ask are, am I willing to make her great? Am I willing to sacrifice my happiness for him? Marriage is saying, I'm going to glue myself to another person who I know will hurt me, and yet I promise to always sacrifice everything to make them beautiful. Now, this might sound crazy to you. Now, how can this framework for marriage be deeply satisfying? It's because of the picture of marriage. So what is the picture of marriage? Look at verse 32 with me. Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it's about Christ and the church. Marriage is a picture that God gives us to show us how he loves his people. And the design of marriage is that it would be a parable for us of his love for his church. And this is why you find yourself wanting to be near marriages where you see real love and real commitment, where you see real repentance and forgiveness. It's because those marriages mysteriously picture the love of Jesus for his church. Um, When we were in Richmond, we were part of a church that was near VCU downtown, and um, there was a a couple that came to our church. They were Chinese students. They were from China, and they were in the States doing PhD programs at VCU. And they were raised atheist or Buddhist, and um, they got married, and they experienced such profound love from one another. They were so overwhelmed by the love that they experienced from one another in marriage that they started asking, where does this love come from? One of them had a grandmother who was a Christian, and they started investigating Christianity because of how it talked about love. And they both became Christians. Their marriage revealed to them that there was a love that could not be explained without a God of love. God's covenant love made the most sense out of the love they were experienced for and from one another. And this is because God's love is covenantal. This means that God has vowed to love you, to be in your corner, to bind himself to you on your best days and your worst days. It means that if you have faith in Christ, he loves you when you go to RUF. And he loves you when you sleep with your girlfriend. He loves you when you memorize Bible verses and when you can't remember what happened last night. I mean, we saw this when we read Hosea together earlier this semester. This Old Testament book about a prophet who marries the village prostitute. And she keeps cheating on him and she gets pregnant. And Hosea is not the father. And Hosea is committed. He will not quit on her. And the point of Hosea, God is shouting as loud as he possibly can. This is how he loves his people. God is the, is the husband and the people, his people are the whore. And when we are spiritually cheating on him over and over again, he remains faithful. When we run to other lovers, when we worship ourselves and our comfort, the idols of success and achievement, for the millionth time, he runs to us. When we break our promises to him again and again, he keeps his promise to us. When we use him to get what we want, he remains faithful. I mean, look at verse 26. His promise is to cleanse us. He marries his bride so that we might become beautiful. He didn't marry us because we are lovely. He married us to make us lovely. And this is the heart of the gospel, the pulse of Christianity. Christianity teaches that God marries the sinner he saves. And he is so committed to you that he binds himself up in your life so that neither he nor you can escape. 
This is both the terrifying and delightful thing about the gospel. Terrifying because God is not going to let you go until you're holy. And delightful because God is not going to let you go until you're holy. So how does he change us? How does he cleanse us? Does he use shame? Does he say, John, how could you do that again? I've been so dedicated to you. Does he use manipulation? Does he say, I can't wait for you to show me how much you love me, John. Things are going to be really great when you finally get your act together and love me the way I've loved you. No. He changes us by loving us. By revealing the depths of his love for us in Christ. The way that God changes us is through his grace. And we see this as we see all beautiful things most clearly in Jesus and on his cross. Because on his cross that we see the foundation of God's love for you. The foundation of your relationship with him. It's his covenant. His promises that he has made to you and he has been faithful to you in Jesus. He promises to never leave you nor forsake you. And this he has sealed with his blood. His blood shed on the cross. And on the cross we see the culture of God's love for you. His self-sacrificial love. On the cross, Jesus did not look down on us with a heart full of admiration and affection. He felt no chemistry, but he gave himself. He put our needs ahead of his own. He sacrificed for us. Jesus died not because we were lovely, but to make us lovely. And on the cross, we see the mission of God's love for you. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus died, he became sin, Paul says, to make us holy in him. So that our lives and our marriages might make his great love known to one another and to the world as he makes us holy. And when you see this, when you see just how much he loves you, you can't help but be moved. One of the the great privileges of being a minister is getting to do weddings. And as a minister, I have the best view in the house. Because as the door opens, um, I see the groom, as he sees his bride, walk down the aisle. And I get to watch him watch her, his beautiful bride, adorned for him. And always, his reaction is that he's overwhelmed with the beauty of his bride. And in May, I got to officiate Sam and Sarah's wedding. Sam, our intern, and his wife, Sarah. And um, when the doors opened... And Sam saw Sarah, when he laid his eyes on her, he started weeping, like red-faced, ugly tears. (laughs) He said I could tell the story. Um, Red-faced, ugly tears, weeping, overwhelmed with her beauty. And according to the Bible, this is Jesus' reaction when he thinks about his bride. He's the groom who has laid down his life for his bride who has cleansed her of her shame and sin, adorned her with his righteousness, and he weeps over you with joy. And on that great day when Christ returns and the church is presented to him as his holy bride, can you picture the look on his face? When you see your Savior and husband face to face, a groom overwhelmed with the beauty of his bride, weeping as he wipes the tears from your eyes. Now, if that vision of Jesus were to get hold of you, what would it do to you? How would that reshape how you think of your own marriage? Let's pray.